had a long career but was later killed by bank robbers, and that's why it's called the Beal Throw. Ah, let's start the show. For those who do not know, the biggest wrestling spectacular, names from all over the country, former champions, I've never seen anything like it. Eddie Graham, Florida Promotion, Vern Gagne, Superstar Billy Graham, Road Warriors, Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee, Bill Watts, Jerry Jarrett, Dory Funk, Harley Race, uh, Nick Bockwinkle. This is Cigars in Conversation with Derek St. Holmes, Esquire. Hello and welcome to Cigars and Conversations, brought to you exclusively at OneGimmickWorld.com. I am your co-host, Jay Gilkay, and I am sitting with a true raconteur in the world of professional wrestling. This man has shared the ring with a who's who of talent that ranges from Jake the Milkman Milliman to George the Animal Steel, all the way to Zach Gowen. Uh, he is a wrestler, manager, commentator, and a trainer who's contributed essays to wrestling publications as well as a cancer survivor, marathon runner, and proponent of the Harvard Step Test as promoted by Mr. Bob Backlund. With 20 years of experience, he is a true Renaissance man with unlimited knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, I am speaking of the one, the only, the incomparable Derek St. Holmes. Derek, how are you? I am wonderful. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I am very excited about this week's episode. I know you are. I can't wait to dig into this one. Um, Last week, we talked about... 1983 in Georgia Championship Wrestling and the last Battle of Atlanta. This week we're talking about the original Battle of Atlanta. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit? Why don't you start us up, Derek? Okay. What a lot of people don't know, there's the last Battle of Atlanta, but in the early 70s there was a promotional war in the Atlanta area that has effects on wrestling that were felt up to 40 years later. It's how wrestling got on TBS. It's how the NWA worked. It's the all slimy machinations behind the scenes. Uh, I cannot wait to get into this. I guess let's uh, we'll give a little bit of a background quickly here first. The uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling was formed in Atlanta in 1944 by promoter Paul Jones, not to be confused with uh, number one Paul Jones, correct? Correct, and not to be a stickler, but it was not Georgia Championship Wrestling. It was ABC time. Booking. It, well, that was the that was ABC Booking, but it was just wrestling at the time. Just wrestling. Just wrestling. A simple time calls for a simple name. That's right. Very nice. And uh, they did that every Friday night at Atlanta's Municipal Auditorium. And it was uh, something that uh, people really got into. Want to talk about that a little bit? Well, of course. It was the local promotion. Uh, Paul Jones, not number one Paul Jones, but the ex-wrestler noted for the hook scissor uh, that became the longtime area promoter. Again, one of the first people to get on television at the time. Uh, able to promote his shows, a member of the Old Boy Network, uh, owned the main booking office in Atlanta, so then he would also own all of the satellite territories as well. Okay. As, as we previously said, you'd get your satellite territories that were owned by people as Choo Choo Jones and Fred Ward and all of these other people would have their small towns and their smaller circuits. They would pay a booking fee to the main office and have their wrestlers sent to them from the booking office. Oh, okay. That sounds good. 
let, tell me a little bit more. Like, get into a little bit more detail if you can about this. Or like, were there other people he worked with? Other promoters? Was there other partners at this point with him, or was it just Paul Jones? Well, no. Remember, the NWA formed in 1946 in uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. It was in Iowa. I'm I, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the city right now. Uh, so Paul Jones was one of the original members that got together, helped carve up the country, and said, this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to control the business, formed a not monopoly, but organized group of men that went together and controlled wrestling in the United States. So he's one of the old school that goes way back with the Sam Muchniks, the Don Owens, the Tony Steckers, the Wally Carbos, all of these names that have cobwebs on them when you say them and a lot of modern people aren't going to know but again this goes back to how wrestling generated in this country got it and then when did things start to change for the georgia promotion well what we really want to get into here was paul jones acquiring partners such as lester welch who was a member of the welch family out of tennessee known for herb welch and we talked about the family tree that would be a good episode we could go into at some point uh, Fred Ward, who was a local booker or a local promoter in that area, and they acquired a partner named Ray Gunkel, who was an ex-collegiate wrestler, uh, became a very popular, very popular babyface in the Atlanta area at this time. Uh, Ray Gunkel uh, was introduced to his wife Ann Gunkel by Jim Barnett and went to a college chum of hers in 1971 to a small UHF station in the Atlanta area called WTCG, which stood for the Turner Communications Group, owned by Ted Turner. Uh, using this, he was able to, of course, become a star in that area, and became, everybody knew Paul Jones was the promoter, but Ray Gunkel was the local star. Okay. From all accounts, it seems like it's business as usual until 1972, about August, right? That's true. Uh, one night, Ray Gunkel went to dinner at a local restaurant, I believe it was called Mama's, where everything was served family style. You didn't get just a plate of everything. They brought a trough of food out to you, and you could eat to your heart's delight. So he ate at this restaurant, was overstuffed, and that night he had a match with Ox Baker. The fantastic Ox Baker! He of the eyebrows and the heart punch. Okay, yep, very now, familiar. Both of these gentlemen had a hard-fought match. It was the end of a feud hit each other with countless forearms across the chest. Uh, brutal match. Ray Gunkel goes back to the locker room, feels lightheaded, suddenly keels over of a heart attack. Now, Oh, wow. That's true. His death was, of course, attributed to the heart punch of Ox Baker, who had already been in a match that he took credit for another man dying, but that was actually his tag team partner that caused the injury. Ox Baker, another one of the local attractions that would go from territory to territory an incredible interview the man was six five had eyebrows that were five inches long had a gravelly voice and looked like he could murder anybody in in sight uh talked people into the arenas not a very good competitor in the ring as evident in the movie escape from new york that's very good you know they wanted him for the kurt russell part but he made too much money wrestling so they just gave him a bit part because you know he would have stolen that and he would have gotten an academy award for that movie i'm quoting ox baker there of course <laughs> very nice so uh you know before we jump ahead here to the gunkel uh, heart attack if i'm not mistaken too the the television was starting up the um, Georgia Championship Wrestling ran their first television show on Christmas Day, uh, 1971. 
it was just kind of a one-shot deal at that point. Uh, it was considered a Christmas special, mm-hmm. like a wrestling Christmas special. And then the actual series or the actual weekly tele, uh, televised product came out in late January of 1972. Now, um, the well, Ox- keep in mind, um, wrestling had been on another station previously in the Atlanta area. Oh, but he went over to do, you know, again, it's the good old boy network. Hey, my wife is friends with Ted Turner. They were rumored to be more than friends, but out of respect for Ray Gunkel still being alive, we won't talk about that at this moment, uh, decided to go over to his friend's station. Okay. That makes sense. Gotcha. Um, and so where do we go from there then? Well, what happens is Ray Gunkel passes away. Uh, one of the partners in this promotion, uh, of course, it's a tragedy. Um, he gets interred in the ground. Everybody lets the dust settle for that. And all of a sudden, his widow, Ann Gunkel, comes to the ABC booking office the next day after the funeral and says, well, boys, I'm here to help run the business. And the boys, of course, this is the South. It's the early 70s. Women's liberation isn't really as in the forefront as it is nowadays. Right. Uh, they basically just say, Anne, don't worry about a thing. You just go home and we're going to take care of, you know, we'll send you your percentage and we'll take care of you. Ann Gunkel, very ambitious woman, decides, no, that's not going to work for me. I need to help run the company. Well, the good old boy network does not enjoy this at all. So when Ann Gunkel leaves that day, the remaining partners essentially close down the company and reform a company called Mid-South Booking. So ABC Booking is shut down. Mid-South Booking suddenly comes up. But the points and the percentages that Ray Gunkel previously owned are not put into the new company. So they basically try to ice her out. They ice her out. They change the locks. They don't allow her access to any records. She is very upset by this, of course, because she's been aced out. She lost what she felt, you know, her and Ray ran hand in hand. They would, they would both run the company. They would both, you know, it, it, was, it was a joint effort, much like Vince McMahon and Linda McMahon were in the early days of the WWF. Yes. So she's very upset at this. Jones and Welch promised to take care of Anne, but then ABC booking is dissolved. Mid-South Sports comes up. And they they ace Anne out. She's very upset at this, so she decides, well, God damn it, if you're going to do this to me, I'm going to ruin you guys. And she forms Gunkel Enterprises. Now, okay. I want to stress what an avant-garde concept this was at the time, because outside of Eileen Eaton in the California area, there's no women promoters in the w, in the wrestling world. I believe there was one or two female sub-promoters in the Texas area, but why this is the nwa we're the old boy network why would we allow a skirt in here right you know so it's very it's antiquated but for the time it's antiquated sorry this is this is what we're dealing with here so there was never an offer to buy out ann gunkel never an offer to secede there she just they just stole it okay and now at that point then you have all this talent that's in that area right what what do they do? Where do where do they go about working? Well, now as with every every workplace with multiple owners, some of the owners are popular, some of the owners aren't. And Gunkel decides I'm going to run my own deal, and I'm going to do my best to get everybody over. Now underneath, Ann Gunkel 
is the actual owner of the Atlanta City Auditorium, or the Municipal Auditorium. Everybody assumed that Paul Jones owned that auditorium, but it was actually owned by a gentleman named Charlie Harbin. And Gunkel gets in his ear, says, I want to split off and do my own thing. And he says, that's a great idea. Screw these guys. I don't like any of them anyway. So he decides he's going to go with Ann Gunkel. Suddenly, she's got the city auditorium. Plans her first show. What she does is organizes a walkout of talent from the Georgia promotion. Established Georgia promotion. Uh, She has 24 wrestlers, referees, ring crew walk out and decide they're going to be with her. Only two people stayed with the original Atlanta promotion, a wrestler named Daryl Cochran and a wrestler named Bob Armstrong. Bullet Bob. Bullet Bob, of course, the father of the Armstrong clan. Yes. This is this is a pre-Armstrong curse days because he was a featured superstar. Let me ask this question. So, Ann Gunkel takes the municipal auditorium. Is the Omni going at that point? No. There's no Omni. Okay. Uh, there's no Omni at that point. It was just the weekly, the weekly show that happened in Atlanta. Okay. Now, the original group still has contracts with that auditorium, but the owner of the auditorium is in Ann Gunkel's back pocket. Yes. So she stages this walkout, and this walkout happens two days before the uh, Thanksgiving show of the NWA group. Now, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Eve and Christmas Eve, or Christmas Day Eve, were the traditional big days in wrestling. Right. Because... Everybody would be around their family. They're sitting around the house. All the little arguments happen. Everybody wants to get out and do something. So they go to professional wrestling. Um, Something we don't really see nowadays. No, no. That's been done away with the concept of pay-per-views and such like that because they're building to the big show. But uh, what was the traditional Thanksgiving show? like? Survivor Series. No, there was one before that in the Atlanta area. I'm not remembering right now. Yeah, I'm not familiar either. Not the bash, but there was was a big show that happened there. So, Ann Gunkel decides to break off on her own in 1972. Performs a three-pronged attack on the established NWA territory. Performs the raid of NWA wrestlers, and then she's able to convince six local cities to join her in her quest. What the, it's six local cities and six local little wrestling? Well, six major cities in the Atlanta area, such as Athens. Now you're catching me off guard. Sure, no, just, and I'm not trying to get... Yeah, what what, what she does, but. essentially, is cuts into the, the main pie that the NWA established promotion was able to do okay i get it and then she's able to establish tv for her place and she runs i believe she runs outside of atlanta at the oglethorpe city auditorium runs her first show how does how does ann gunkel establish tv for her promotion she walks into her buddy's ted turner's office and says ted i need an hour of tv doesn't ask him says i need an hour of tv now, they were friends, wink, wink, back in the day. So, of course, he goes ahead and gives her that hour of the TV and cancels the NWA group. The NWA group, now we're getting ahead of ourselves, but they come around and sue Ted Turner saying, no, we have a contract with your station. We need to play our show on your station. So what does Ted Turner do? He plays an hour of Ann Gunkel's show, and then he plays an hour of the NWA show. Oh, wow. So, again, we're jumping ahead here. 
But at the end, that's how a two-hour wrestling block got established on the Turner Network okay, yeah. broadcast. And at the again, jumping way ahead here, but that's why at 5.05 on Saturdays, you had a two-hour block of wrestling. Do we, was it ever established again? I guess this is kind of a side uh-huh. comment. Was it ever established why shows began at 05 on the Superstation? Marketing. It was marketing. It was saying like, oh, you have five minutes to see what else is on and then make your way over to our program. Right. Yeah, that was all just marketing by Ted Turner. Now, when Ted Turner bought WTCG, uh, he didn't really know what he had. He walked in. He's just like, I'm going to buy me a TV station and walked in and it was populated by Hicks and they didn't have any sort of like all of their programming was Andy Griffith reruns. Right. Uh, sports programming, and then he finally got professional wrestling. And so professional wrestling is what pushed the ratings of his stations up until he decided to put that up on a satellite, which is why he stuck with wrestling as far as he could until he had to sell his empire off to the, what, the Time Warner empire in the late 90s. Yes, yes. So that's one thing that helped keep wrestling on TV is that Ted Turner was wedded to that concept. Okay. So... Ann Gunkel performs this raid of the NWA um, three days before a major show. So suddenly the NWA machine goes into overdrive. Here's this outsider trying to encroach on our territory. So all of the other area promoters, people like Jim Crockett, Nick Gullis, Eddie Graham, all import their talent so that the NWA can still make their money on the show that night. Okay. And what's the repercussion on the wrestlers after something like this happens? Well, of course, everybody that moved over to Ann Gunkel was threatened with a black ball. You work for them, you're never going to work for us. And it wasn't a smooth transfer of talent because this, again, the NWA machine goes into overdrive here. All the promoters, there's an ex-wrestler named Jim Wilson, who's now passed away, very known to the local audience as one of, or not local audience, current audience as one of the participants in the 1985-2020 expose. Mm -hmm. Also wrote a book called Chokehold um, that goes into great detail about all of this, and a lot of this information is confirmed by what's there. He claims he heard a meeting, a conference call, in the Atlanta Auditorium or the Atlanta Promoter's Office of people like Gullis and Crockett and all of these other people actively trying to come together to, quote-unquote, solve the Gunkel problem. Oh, wow. He claimed to have direct knowledge of their activities, what they were going to do to block Gunkel and make sure she couldn't get any wrestlers. Yes. So, but we're getting ahead of ourselves here because Ann Gunkel breaks off, forms this new promotion, gets TV, and suddenly starts out drawing the NWA in the Atlanta area. And this creates great consternation in the area among the NWA members. And at that point, Mid-South Sports is... And it's kind of on its last legs, or they're not even on last legs, but it's just like it's suffering, it's down. Yes, it's suffering, it's down. Uh, I do want to point out Ann Gunkel's promotion, Gunkel Enterprises, but the promotion is called All South Wrestling. Sure. So ASWA, All South Wrestling Association. And there is some footage on YouTube. Uh, there's an incredible match with Dick Steinborn against Tommy Siegler that I just love watching um, of the first broadcast of the All South Wrestling Alliance. So. Gunkel, Gunkel splits off. 
she's got uh, Charlie Harbin, who was uh, Ray Gunkel's bag man. Oh, sorry, here's a little concept I didn't tell you. I know this is going to shock you, but a lot of the old-time promoters would skim their houses. Oh, really? Yeah, I know. It's surprising, right? Promoters always get the first count, so, you know, uh, whatever formula they'd want to use. Oh, we made $50,000. Why don't we take off 5%? And that's just for incidentals. And suddenly that money disappears, and, you know, this this figure gets reported to the tax and the, yeah. the state commissions and stuff like that. So Charlie Harbin knows the skim, so he's very he's very integral to all of this. Okay. Uh Ann Gunkel, also, she's a promoter, but she's not a booker, pulls over one of the assassins, Tom Renesto. Now, the assassins were a masked tag team going in through the 60s with the yellow mask, with the black face plate. You know, back, black face plate. Why can't I say that? I know. I know. It's just it's so much information. Uh, pulls him over, decides to use him as a booker. Known, known very well, has a good wrestling mind. On the first television show... She introduces the assassin. The assassin comes out and thanks everybody for a 14-year career. Um, says he's going to step back from the wrestling ring. Suddenly, what all of his opponents have been trying to do for the last 14 years, he reaches up, unlaces his mask, and says, My name is Tom Renesto, and I will be here every week, and walks off. That's amazing. Now, why did he do this? Because... He knew that once he came over, there was a picture out there of Joe Hamilton and Tom Ernesto unmasked. And he knew that the other promoters would try and publish that to say, look, this is who the assassin is. He also knew that this would be a pointless maneuver because people didn't really care who the masked masked wrestlers were. They wanted to see them get unmasked. Right. So what he did was essentially short-circuit that and say, no, I'm going to do it myself. Boom, here we go. This, of course, led to a feud with him and the assassin number two, who is Jody Hamilton, which people have seen wrestle Dusty Rhodes several times over the years and later became a trainer and everything. Also yes. wrote a very good book, The Man uh, the Man Behind the Mask from Crowbar Press, which I wholeheartedly endorse. Buy everything published by Crowbar Press. That's all I can say there. So he unmasks willingly on the first television show. This creates a ripple through the community. Hey, this is something we have to watch. Let's go ahead and, and you know, so the fans start to go over to All South. The NWA starts to get very nervous about this. What are we going to do? Our houses are down. We're being cut in. Suddenly, they bring in the Godfather. Now, this would be a good episode that we could do. Hey, maybe we should do it next week. I think we will. An episode about Jim Barnett, the godfather of professional wrestling. The most powerful man in wrestling that chances are you've never heard of. Um, along with Stu Hart, one of the most imitated people in professional wrestling. My boy. He comes in after getting out of the Atlanta territory, and we need the godfather to help us with all of this. So Jim Barnett, who actually introduced Ann and Ray Gunkel, comes in to work against her with the NWA. George Arnold MacArthur, better known as Crybaby George Cannon, was a Canadian pro wrestler and wrestling manager, best known for his stint as the manager of the Fabulous Kangaroos in the original Sheik's big-time wrestling promotion which operated out of Detroit, Michigan. Cannon's nickname, Crybaby, 
came from his ability to mimic a panicked or scared look while wiping profuse amounts of sweat from his brow, making it look as though he was sobbing and weeping uncontrollably. Cannon was born in Montreal, Quebec as George Arnold MacArthur, and as a young adult spent some time competing with the Regina Rough Riders, a Canadian football team that is now known as the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. He began wrestling in Japan in 1953, however, in 1955, he made his way to Canada to apply his craft. He continued to work as a wrestler for two years and then decided to take a break for another two. He returned to the ring in the Great White North in 1959. As a heel, George had the ability to tick off a crowd without saying a word. Working in the American Midwest in the 1960s, George Man Mountain Cannon came to the ring in a jacket with the words I am right emblazoned on the back. He stole this slogan from Wild Red Berry, a former wrestling manager. Intimidating just by his size, the words warned the crowd of a braggart and a bully and a loudmouthed one at that. Just the image George wanted to portray. As a manager, he often came to the ring wearing a battle helmet and his patented ring jacket ready to ignite the crowd. One of his most popular gimmicks was George Iron Stomach Shtick, which Cannon would do from time to time on TV. Simply put, George would line up anyone and everyone in the audience and let each one hit him in the stomach as hard as they wanted. He invited them to take their best shot. From the teenage boys to the biggest mature men, they would invariably pound George in the stomach, only to be left grimacing or shaking their hands in pain. George, visibly unshaken by the plexus pounding, would sometimes hold a humorous monologue or play-by-play -play during the attempted beatings. One time, he went so far as to read aloud from the collected works of Shakespeare, all the while members of the audience took turns punching him in the stomach. Is that the best you can do? George would ask. The shtick did two valuable things. It created audience participation and added an air of legitimacy to wrestling, proving Cannon to be a master showman and promoter. Another memorable angle that the crybaby took part of was the Big Splash competition, which consisted of George Cannon and the 601-pound Haystacks Calhoun flopping on top of each other in the ring to settle a dispute about who had the most lethal finishing maneuver. Unfortunately, George came out on the losing end and, after being subjected to three big splashes, also suffered several smacks across the face with the horseshoe Calhoun kept as a good luck charm. Outside the ring, Cannon was known for publishing and editing wrestling magazines and as host to the Windsor, Ontario-based Contact Sports Wrestling Show. He also hosted the television program Superstars of Wrestling out of Detroit and spent 1968 through 1970 in California where he hosted a variety TV show on station KTLA. It was after his return to Canada in 1970 that he managed the Kangaroos. The team feuded with the Stomper and Ben Justice in a storyline in which the Kangaroos supposedly broke the Stomper's leg. The teams feuded for two years during which time the Stomper continually tried to get revenge by attacking Cannon any chance he could get. Cannon worked in many capacities for the American-based International Wrestling Association run by Eddie Einhorn in 1975. Cannon performed many of the company's duties in front of and behind the camera, including wrestling, managing, and booking some of the events. Late in his career, he partnered with the World Wrestling Federation owner Vince McMahon to promote house shows but later became unable to continue his duties due to phlebitis.
Making it no secret, Cannon would often comment on how he regretted the deal with McMahon and was very bitter about the way he was treated by the WWF. Cannon's nephew Derek Brown is quoted as saying, George Cannon devoted his entire life to the sport of professional wrestling. He was a true believer that this sport would continue to grow and generate more and more fans as time progressed. He helped promote and sell this sport over the years to help make it what it is today, a media monstrosity. Maybe I'm a little biased as I am his nephew, but during family get-togethers he was truly the main attraction as he told story after story of his times and escapades in the world of professional wrestling. Everyone would show up when they knew Uncle George and Aunt Gilda would be there. He would bring autographed pictures of all the biggest stars and give them to all of his nieces and nephews, stars like Gino Brito, Hulk Hogan, and Rowdy Roddy Piper. When wrestling was in town, anyone who wanted to get tickets got tickets, front row so close you could feel the blood and the sweat hitting you. The fact was that not only did he work within the sport, but he was an enormous fan of it too. We all truly miss him dearly. George continued to promote small wrestling shows until dying of cancer on July 1st, 1994. One can only assume that Crybaby Cannon is undoubtedly lining up the angels and inviting them to take their best shot at his iron stomach. Okay, so Jim Barnett comes in. Here's the part of the story I love because here's how dirty and underhanded and just scummy professional wrestling is back in the day. Jim Barnett is a godfather bringing years and years of experience from his days starting at the Dumont Network in Chicago. Jim Barnett comes in, organizes the group, immediately starts putting lawsuits against the Gunkel Enterprises claiming that they stole assets, uh, stole property from the established promotion just to tie up in lawsuits. Uh, one thing to remember, again, as we've stated, the NWA was a monopoly, so they would control wrestling in a given area. They didn't necessarily, their strength wasn't putting on a better product than any opposition. Their strength was knowing how to deal with de opposition. Okay. So immediately what they start to do is they try to set up TV station deals to make sure they, they tie, tie that up. They immediately start to tie up arenas with exclusion clause, like you can't run another wrestling event 14 days before or 14 days following our deal. But here's where it gets good. They start doing things like calling INS on foreign wrestlers. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, to get the, oh, you're going to work for that group? We're going we're gonna to call INS. And they're, so what they're essentially doing is blocking access to, blocking access of wrestlers to Ann Gunkel. They're stopping the rotation of talent that's very needed in order to keep the faces fresh and everything like that. This happens at the NWA, the 1973 NWA meeting. Now, the NWA meetings, as we've stated before, were where all of the major promoters would get together. Ostensibly, the 73 meeting was to approve new bylaws and review the rules of the organization, but it's really to solve the Gunkel problem. Yes. Now, Jim Barnett was the, the secretary of the NWA, so he took the minutes of the meetings. So, 
everything, you know, we'll come to order. We're going to discuss this. We're going to discuss that. Finally, when it becomes time to talk about the Gunkel problem, let's adjourn. We're going to, we need a bathroom break. We need a coffee break. We need a smoke break. And they would leave the room and discuss everything out in the hallway so that nothing was in the minutes of the meeting because they knew if there was any legal problems, they're going to subpoena those minutes. Well, there's nothing in there. Oh, right. So smart, very, very scummy. So in these side meetings, they come up with plans to cancel foreign work permits for foreign wrestlers or lean on somebody. Uh, I believe it was Roberto Soto. They told him he can't work for Ann Gunkel or they're going to cancel his brother's work permit in New York. Oh, wow. You know, to put pressure on like that. So really reaching out Uh everywhere. Uh, They come up with stipends for some people to jump back. What's Gunkel paying you? 500 a week? We will pay you 1,000 a week to come over here. You know, things like that. Um, Offer people ownership in territories if you come with us. And then there's also things like, you know, you better get out of town. People get hurt for working for Ann Gunkel. (laughs) Wow. People get hurt bad. Uh, Cause no shows. Oh, good. Hey, hey, Andre, why don't why don't you agree to a date for Ann Gunkel? Dick the Bruiser, go ahead, agree to a date for Ann Gunkel. Oh, her 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 advertising's out. It's close to the show. Boom, you guys are working somewhere else that night. So suddenly she has no shows. Yeah, and this wow. hurts her. Uh, even things like exposing paternity issues of certain wrestlers. Like you look, you know, we know. Y- we know you have a biracial child. We're going to tell everybody about it. So they really got down and dirty. Yeah, but that's, again, this is, it's a scummy business and it's dirty and it's, I love it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, just reading about all of this stuff. It's so entertaining. Yeah. The other thing they start doing is pumping up the local shows in the Atlanta area. For example, in 1972, before they were organized, the NWA World Champion appeared in the Atlanta area four times. In 1973, the NWA Champion was in the Atlanta area ten times. Oh, really? So suddenly, they're bringing in all of this talent. Andre was advertised for Ann Gunkel. No, he's over here for the NWA. Dick the Bruiser, Bobo Brazil, all of these major stars were brought in and concentrated in that area in order to starve out Gunkel. Gotcha. And, and eventually that happens? Oh, oh well, eventually. We're still getting yeah, we're there, still of getting course. we're Sure. Oh, where are we here? The Jim Barnett lawsuits, stolen assets, control of bids for ter- for arenas. Oh, okay. Uh, there's a good story of a local arena that Gunkel was running. Uh, they ran a yearly bid to get the rights for, to run that arena. Suddenly, somehow, whatever bid that Gunkel would put in, there was another bid that was $100 more, even at the sealed envelope. And... This so they had people on the inside. Um, the Omni opens in '72 or '73, '74. '72 or '73. '73. Uh, Gunkel tries to get in there. She has difficulty getting a meeting with Tom Kuma, the general manager, who's suddenly seen wearing a fancy new Rolex that what came from his friend Jim Barnett. Oh wow! You know, it's like yeah, we're we're just gonna take care of that. Uh, in Augusta, that's where they got beat. So. When Gunkel loses Augusta, Atlanta is her only grocery town, and all she has is a city auditorium that draws 5,000, but she needs to get that Omni that draws 12,000, 15,000. She can't get in there. It's it's amazing the way they freeze her out like this. And how long is this process? Is this, is this over a series of 
half of a year, couple months, a year? What What do you think? Uh, this is over two years till finally 1974. Okay, and that's when she can't compete anymore. And she can't compete anymore. She begins jokingly referring to herself as the queen of the jabronis. Oh, okay. Another interesting fact here is the people that are working for Gunkel suddenly notice that Tom Renesto, this master booker that she brought in, suddenly is booking cards that just aren't interesting. Lots of double countouts, lots of boring finishes, lots of, like, what's going on here? We can't figure out why we can't make any money and why aren't these shows any better. Yes. So we get to the end of 1974, or finally Anne says, Anne takes a meeting with Jim Barnett and says, I, I have to give up. I'm going out of business. So Jim Barnett, who's ever the, the appeasement person, gives her a token payment, you know, $150,000 to buy her out, quote, okay. unquote. Buys out Ann Gunkel, she hangs it up. Oh, I'm sorry, before we get to that, Ann, in a last minute try to make some money, tries to book a, a show in the New York area. She's like, I can't make any money in this population base, I'm going to go to New York. Has to get a promoter's license in New York. Goes into the licensing office. The ma- the man there says, I am a personal friend of Vince McMahon, and I will not even give you the application form for this license. <laughs> oh, boy. Just blocked. We Just can, like that. Yep. It's like, I'm sorry, we're not going to do this. Wow. Again, this is the old school, having people in their back pocket. That seems so crazy to want to go from, like, if you're in georgia you're running atlanta and you're like i think the next logical thing to try to do would be try to go to new york well but new york has the population base right so uh if you're in atlanta and you're drawing two percent of the population you know you're getting twenty thousand people but if you go to new york and you're drawing two percent of the population you're getting two hundred thousand people to pull from well and that makes sense i could see that so she's trying to do this and finally she takes a private meeting with jim barnett because remember they were friends back in the day right and she says look i'm i can't do this much longer I'm, I'm having difficulty making money here. And he's like, well, Anne, you just let me buy you out and we will take care of you. So Anne Gunkel decides, you know what? Screw most of my wrestlers. I'm going to take this payout and I'm going to, I'm going to get out of town. Yeah. Anne Gunkel takes the payout. Suddenly Tom Renesto has a three year booking contract with the NWA territories. Oh, wow. So it comes out. The NWA's person on the inside was Tom Renesto, who was intentionally poorly booking the show so that they wouldn't make money and Anne would get frozen out. That is amazing. I just think this is so interesting and just a, such a complex web of good old boy network and intrigue right, and dirty right. playing and dirty fighting. And keep in mind, other there was another group, uh, Jim Wilson, again, the 2020 guy, uh, Tried to work for the NWA, but got frozen out. Uh, we can go into this in the Jim Barnett episode that we're threatening we're going to do. Uh, gets frozen out of the NWA. Goes to work for Ann Gunkel. Notices his paydays are going down. Gets frustrated with how he's being handled there. Attempts to run a show with Thunderbolt Patterson at the Omni Arena. Uses some... Uh, with with Thunderbolt Patterson, who is an African-American, suddenly gets some African-American civi- uh, civil personalities in there to put pressure on the Omni to give them a date. So, okay, they have a wrestling date. They've got some bookers put together. They're going to try and run their own deal. They try to record two 30-second commercials. 
to put on TV and they go to the, they go to Turner Broadcasting and say, we need to put these commercials on TV and they take their money and they say, sure, sure, we'll play these commercials. So what did they do? They play these commercials before the wrestling show and after the wrestling show, but they put on commercials for the NWA product before and after both showings of these commercials so that the average person watching it, it's just a morass of names right. and dates and what's going on here, but but they're left with that... The NWA taste. Right. So they finally get their date, and they go to run at the Omni. And tickets, they're trying to flyer at different NWA shows, they're, you know, which is still done today with indie groups and everything. They're trying to flyer... Uh, NWA wrestlers come out, attempt to run them off, but they have, you know, it's in front of people. So they got the police, they keep telling them, you might as well stop handing out those flyers. You've only got 3000 in pre-sales. So it's like, wait a minute, how does this guy know how much pre-sale we have? And he's for the other group. Right. So that's very strange. So finally the day of the show comes and they've got that 3000 pre-sale, but they've got a good walk up and everybody's excited and all of a sudden they notice that people stop coming in right when the show starts. Like, well, what's going on here? Suddenly they ask, they go around and look, the doors to the Omni are, are locked shut. They're not letting anybody else in. Well, what's going on here? Oh, it's a new policy here that uh, we have to shut the doors when the event starts. Oh, wow. It's like, well, who, who okayed this? Tom Kuma, the general manager. Well, where is he? Oh, he went home for the night. Wow, so real, some so, real shady stuff happening. So they blocked people going into the into the Omni. Uh, three matches into the show, the ring falls apart. So they have to take a, an intermission to put the ring back together. Now, the conspiracy theorist and myself would say, bad ring crew or just a series of bad events happening and this just happened to no, happen? No, I, I'm willing to bet it was all planned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then the okay, so they they got whatever amount of people into the building. They have the show. They go to get the payoff, and they find out oh the bookkeepers for the the company, the bookkeepers for the Omni, they went home already. So you're gonna have to wait to get your money. No, it's like okay, so they they get told you you can pick this up on Tuesday. They come on Tuesday. No, you have to come on Thursday. They come on Thursday, find out that. The expenses for the Omni were supposed to be this. They're actually this, and they only make a $2,000 profit on the show. They've got to pay all the wrestlers out of that $2,000. So everybody that worked in front of all these people are suddenly getting peanuts for paydays, and right. they, don't, they don't want to work for Jim Wilson anymore. Oh, wow. So, of course, Jim Wilson remembers this when he's doing all of his whining and crying. Now, keep in mind, Jim Wilson says that he was promised the NWA title and all of this other stuff, but if you look at tapes of him from the IWA, horrible worker. Oh, really? Just horrible. But had the sports background, thought he was real. Has a meeting with the Sheik after the Sheik gets frozen out of the NWA. Starts to tell him this story, and the Sheik just says, oh, I know about it. I know how they tried to freeze you out. They had to do it because they didn't want you to work. They didn't want you to succeed. So again, with Ann Gunkel, with this IWL, the NWA worked their magic to right. keep people out. Again, did not have to put on a superior product, just had to block the opposition. Right, right. And once they're blocked, then they just end up starting to lose that business. Business drops off. Okay, so let's go back to the television. Yes. Ann Gunkel had an hour of TV, and the NWA had an hour of TV. So they've got that time reserved. Once Ann Gunkel goes out of business, 
boom, now there's the two-hour block of wrestling on TBS. Yes. And that's how that happens. When I say it has repercussions 40 years later, that's why all through the heyday of wrestling for our generation, that's why there was the two-hour block of wrestling on TBS. So, okay, so now there's a two-hour block of wrestling on TBS. Um, It starts to get beamed. The satellite goes nationwide. The superstation that serves the nation. Yes. um, I believe that's in 76. Yep. Now, what are the repercussions for Georgia Championship Wrestling when that happens, being members of the NWA, and now they're being shown everywhere in the United States, but they're the only NWA affiliate that's being shown throughout the United States? Is there heat for that? Oh, yes. There's very much heat for that because, as we said before, suddenly the promoters like Ole Anderson and such are looking where they're having interest of their shows and they're running tours in these area, these areas. And the established promoters, like the Sheik, are saying, hey, why are you stepping in my backyard like this? And they try to say, oh, we're not stepping in your backyard. We don't have TV. We're just running off of this program. Right, okay. And they're trying to say, hey, uh, we're sorry that it's a national program. It's just the technology, so this is what they're going to do. So there's heat among the promoters in the NWA I keep saying it's the old boy network and that's how things worked, but the alliances would shift constantly. Yeah. You know, back and forth. It was it was a bunch of thieves. Again, all of these promoters are experts at cutting back the houses, underpaying the boys, underreporting their taxes. You know, even Paul Bosch, who tried to uh you know, buck against the NWA one time until somebody said, I know your scam. I've seen both sets of books. Oh, wow. Okay. And so then yeah. he suddenly would back off. You know, one of the most honorable promoters, but still, it was part of the game. Yeah. Just Ole Anderson puts it in his book best, where some people use the 10% formula, some people use the 5% formula, some people just take whatever they want <laughs> just out of the house. Yeah. That, that's awesome. Um, so. Then Georgia Championship Wrestling is surviving again. They're on the the satellite channel, Superstation. Mm -hmm. That goes on for, I mean, until then, till the early 80s, right? Yeah, until Black Saturday. Right. And who, like, at say towards the end, towards Black Saturday, who is the main operators or who are the main people, who has their shares or their stakes in Georgia Championship Wrestling? Uh, If I recall correctly, Ole held a percentage uh, the Briscoe brothers both held 10%. Uh, Jim Barnett has a percentage. Jim Barnett has a percentage, but then he has another friend, Jim Oates, who's a promoter who also has a percentage, and Paul Jones still has a percentage. Okay. So Vince McMahon starts to go national. Uh, Roddy Piper, of course, worked in the Mid-Atlantic area and was friends with all of those guys and suffered an injury backstage. I want to say he cut his hand or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's talking, well, how's Piper doing? Oh, I don't know. I heard he lost a finger. I heard this. And finally, I believe it's Jack or Jerry just says, well, you know what? I'm just going to call up and find out. So he calls Vince McMahon and says, hey, how is, how's Roddy Piper doing? And Vince says, oh, he's fine. He just cut his hands. Can you talk? It's like, yeah, I kind of. Would you guys be willing to sell? I want to try and get the, I want to try and get the, the company. Would you guys be willing to sell? Well, I can't talk right now. Okay, I'm going to send you and your brother plane tickets. We'll meet in Newark, New Jersey, New Jersey in two days. They fly in. He's like, okay. Vince McMahon asked the Briscoe brothers, 
where where does the stock lie? And they, they give him the breakdown of the percentage. Well, what could you deliver if you sell? Uh, get the 20% of the Briscoe brothers. They think they can deliver, they can get a hold of Paul Jones and they can get a hold of Jerry Oates. Was it, no, not Jerry Oates. Uh, I forget who, they can get Jim Barnett's percentage. Sure. Oh, I'm sorry. No, Jim Barnett has seceded his percentage because Jim Barnett is now working for the WWF. Okay. Who probably got in Vince's ear about buying the company. Right. So Vince essentially sets up a deal that he's going to buy out as much, get more than 51% of the stock for Georgia Georgia Championship Wrestling. Ole was taking one of his, I believe, quarterly vacations. He had a sawmill back in Wisconsin that he managed and he would go back and visit because he's from Minnesota. Right. Like lived in the northern Wisconsin area. So he was out. While he's out, suddenly 80% of the company is sold out from under him. And he gets a phone call from his secretary saying, Oli, they bought it all. Like, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? Vince McMahon bought the company. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? I will. Co- well, of course, Oli probably used a lot more swears than right, that. Right, right. A little bit more was, aggressive. He's very known for that. So he flies in. Suddenly, Vince McMahon, Linda McMahon, and Gorilla Monsoon walk in, and they're like, Oli, we bought the company. Oli's like, you son of a bitch. What do you mean you bought the company? Vince is just like, Oli, it's just business. Come with me, and I will make you more money than you'll ever think possible. And Oli thought about it for two seconds, looks at Vince and says, Vince, fuck you and fuck your wife. Wow. And that's how... That's how Black Saturday happened. Yeah. So Black Saturday happens. Uh, The WWF goes to Ted Turner and says, we own this company. We have this time slot on your television program. Ted says, that's great, but this place is built on studio wrestling, so you got to have your wrestlers down here every week to produce this content. Vince says, sure, that's great. Black Saturday happens. Boom, the WWF is down there. And there's footage of that on YouTube. Yeah, I've seen that. Uh, Mr. Wrestling 2 is featured, I believe, so mm-hmm. who I love. Uh, pretty soon after that, Vince decides it's not cost-effective to send people down there, so we're just going to give you a tape. Ted Turner does not like this at all. In the meantime, Oli is running shows, still trying to run shows under Georgia Championship Wrestling, but he's got like lower-level talent like... Italian stallion level talent okay. as his yeah, main event. Yeah, yeah. So he's not doing very well, but he's local. So Ted says, well, they've got this two hour block. There's not much I can do about that. I'm going to give you an hour on Sunday morning. So Georgia championship wrestling starts up again, running an hour on Sunday morning. Oh, wow. Okay. Vince doesn't like this at all because he doesn't like opposition on his station. Um, some unrest happens. There's some rumors through the business that he wants to get out. Suddenly, Jim Crockett, who's up in the Carolinas, is like, wait a minute. I have a chance to become a national promotion. I'm going to get a hold of Turner and start to that. Winds up buying the rights to run on TBS from Vince McMahon for a million dollars. Writes the check, gives it to Vince, and Vince says, you're going to choke on that million dollars. <laughs> and that leads to the World Championship Wrestling. Uh, well, they change from Georgia Championship Wrestling to World Championship Wrestling, 
And that becomes what our generation basically sees at 5.05 on Saturday on TBS and also why they see it on Sunday morning again because those were the two blocks of time that were established for professional wrestling. Absolutely amazing. Ridiculous story. Um, One of those only in wrestling type things. Yes. Um, Absolutely phenomenal just being able to go through and see the seediness and the underhanded dealings and how the business works from the inside. I feel like I learned a ton today, things that I didn't know. Uh, Thank you for bringing it to the table, Derek. Uh, We talked about it. uh, We've inched towards it, and uh, I think we're going to tackle it next time. So next time we get together, we're all excited. Uh, The man, the myth, the legend, uh, Jim Barnett. My boy. Yeah, we'll uh, spend some time with Jim Barnett. uh, You know, talk about his, uh, I don't want to say humble beginnings but it just his beginnings well um, there's there was a status of jim barnett but it's rumored it was all a life of illusion we'll get into that yep started out in chicago became an international promoter in australia came back and was behind some of the biggest moves in the business that we saw i love it uh so we will be getting to jim barnett next time we get together i'm not sure you want to say that about jim barnett <laughs> that's a great point Point well taken. That's why you are... Another the... thing you don't want to say about Jim Barnett. Yes. Very We're, we're going to talk about Jim Barnett. We'll, we'll talk about Jim Barnett yet next time. Absolutely. So again, this is Cigars and Conversations with Derek St. Holmes Esquire. We are exclusively on OneGimmickWorld.com. Thank you again to all of our uh, listeners and supporters who have uh, contacted us and have supported what we're doing. We're just loving it. And uh, we're loving doing the show for you. We hope you like it. Again, if you have any questions or anything you'd like us to cover, contact us on Facebook or right here on OneGimmickWorld.com. You can talk to us, leave your comments, anything you want to know. Derek will try his best to uh, figure it out and get get back to you on it. So, again, thank you very much. Uh, I'm your co-host, Jay Gilkay, speaking for the one, the only, Derek St. Holmes Esquire. And we will see you next time on Cigars and Conversations. Mm -hmm.